Hello, McKenna. Hello, finally. And I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited too. So I have like the longest either disclaimer or introduction to this. So just bear with me. I'm so down. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the first long form conversation for Commonplace that I've recorded since March 3rd. Um, it's the first one that I've done remotely in this particular way. I did record one other commonplace conversation remotely with Sheila Hetty and Sarah Mangusa, which was probably going to come up in this conversation. Your book, The Shame, is one of only two books that I have read since the pandemic in their entirety. And your book is incredibly wonderful as a book and uh, very significant to me. Um, I reached out to you. I think I actually reached out to Sheila Hetty and then she told you that I loved your book and you reached out to me. And I don't know if I told you this or I told Sheila this, but I was like, no, I can never ever have McKenna on Commonplace because I would have to reveal that this novel, which we're going to talk about what it's about soon, is too connected to my life. And I, at that point, was not ready uh, to come out as a person who was about to get divorced. Um, and I also, so this is also the first Commonplace episode um, that I've recorded since announcing my divorce. It's also, you know, I've had a lot of people on Commonplace who write hybrid uh literature, you know, kind of poetry that's almost like memoir or poetry that's almost like novels. And you're one of the uh, few like real novelists um, that I've had on Commonplace. I don't know if you, do you know how to use a sewing machine? Yeah. I don't want to pigeonhole you as a homesteader, <laughs> you know, <laughs> make these assumptions. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> it's sort of like when you go backwards on the sewing machine to strengthen the seam or yeah. like maybe like a pleat. So there's all these different periods of time. There's the time in which I'm thinking about your book um, in preparation and thinking about questions. Then there's the time in which we're talking to each other. And then there's the time in which I'm, uh, you know, listening and listening and listening to your conversation, to our conversation. And then I write and record an introduction, which sort of pulls together all of these periods of time and projects into the future of imagining a listener listening to the sound of my voice. And, and I try to give the listener enough context, uh, a short bio, um, but ultimately it's all very narcissistic. And so I end up sort of saying, this is what this book meant to me. And this is what this conversation meant to me. And this is what I learned. And Commonplace is back. This is episode I don't know what. And I am actually hoping not to record an, a separate introduction, to just go with this. So if you ended up listening to my recent conversation with David Naiman, episode 89, you'll know I didn't go with this. Instead, I edited, re-edited, unedited, abandoned, revisited, re-edited this conversation that I recorded with McKenna on September 4th. I did this not because there was something wrong with the conversation. I was having many personal and global complications, rethinking commonplaces form, and having, I guess, an editorial crisis of confidence. 
Finally, I had the presence of mind to go to David Naiman, who encouraged me to air this episode without fully figuring out the larger questions about commonplace or my life. If you want more context about how this conversation with McKenna fits into my life and the development of the podcast, I invite you to listen to episode 89. If you want to hear me and McKenna talk about her novel, about our lives, motherhood, vigor, capitalism, our longingness for understanding, how much we love the real, well, just keep listening to this conversation, episode 90. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a copy of one of the following books. McKenna Goodman's The Shame, Amalie Notham's Strike Your Heart, Angela Davis's Women, Race, and Class, and in honor of episode 89, Ursula K. Le Guin, Conversations on Writing with David Naiman. Many thanks to Milkweed Editions, Europa Editions, Vintage Books, and Tin House Books for these amazing books. All patrons will get access to two lists compiled by McKenna. One is of women writers she admires who have been translated into English. The other is a list of artists currently on McKenna's mind who play with the real. This podcast has no institutional or corporate affiliation and is made possible by you, our patrons. To find out how to support Commonplace financially, to receive our per-episode email newsletter, or for a list of the people and texts mentioned in this episode, visit commonpodcast.com. Commonplace is also made possible by the emotional support and encouragement of my friends, students, and listeners. I want you to know, listeners, that your messages are reaching me. They sustain, bolster, and egg me on. Thank you. I ended up listening to this conversation at least 10 times over the past three months, and I'm glad I did. I think I needed to hear McKenna talk about the light around the door. I think I needed in these excruciating months to hear I'm not the only woman wondering how it's possible to be so rageful and full of joy. I needed to hear her say, what better way is there to bring rage and compassion closer together than to fail constantly in front of your children with compassion? I have been failing in so many ways. Hopefully, it is often or mostly with compassion. I can't even begin to talk about this moment in the pandemic, and I'm not going to try right now. I know if I try, I will never upload this episode, and I want to, because there's so much comfort and writerly provocation here, and because this is my way of being with McKenna and being with you. I hope wherever you are, you're warm, you're safe, you're loved, you're seen for who you are, shadow and all. And if you're failing, you're failing with compassion. Published your, your new and first novel called The Shame just came out. You were born in California and you moved to Durango as a young child. And then you moved to New York at, I think, age 11. Is that correct? Yeah, whoa. Yeah. I, I, I've been doing some research on you. You're my Celeste. Um, 
but you spent a lot of time driving back and forth from New York to Durango with your mother and spent summers in Durango. You do not have an MFA. You worked and maybe still do as a freelance editor, uh, mostly uh, about books having to do with agriculture. So you're in this very interesting position of having been in publishing, but not in the world of literary fiction. You moved to Vermont. Uh, when did you move to Vermont? I moved to Vermont in 2009. Okay. And do you like the word homesteader? I know there are a <laughs> lot of, like, the back to the land movement, if it is even a movement. Yeah. You, you moved I to Vermont. Yeah. Oh, sorry. My phone is ringing. <laughs> uh, that I did not anticipate. It's definitely a telemarketer or my mother. It's my mother. Oh, my God. <laughs> do you want to answer? Uh, no. Um. I don't identify as a homesteader because um, I, I, I think I live close to the land, but I think less and less so and more and more so in different ways. Um, at the time that I started writing this, The Shame, I was living closer to the land um, than I am now. But yeah, I guess compared to most people, um, one would say I live on a homestead in that we grow most of our own food. Mm -hmm. Are you teaching now? Well, so, okay, this is, I'm, I'm sort of a freelance editor, but I've, I've put that aside and I'm working at a school hmm. um, more as like an administrator and doing a little bit of like creative writing workshop stuff. But, um, but yeah, I don't know if I, Sorry, this is like a really awkward beginning to the interview. I don't know how I feel about saying that mm -hmm. <laughs> because like I don't, I'm really private and I'm really, I'm really sort of, I'm interested in and also terrified by like different selves coexisting in oneself. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a Gemini, but I definitely feel like I'm not sure that the writer self, if it even could be called the writer self, can coexist with those things or like I sort of feel like it has to be this secret kind mm. of and so I don't actually live as a multifaceted person I live as like one side of a person with the other sides secreted away so um, the, kind of so the part that you feel nervous about saying right now is that you do other things other than writing no. More just like, am I allowed to say that I work at this place? I don't know. Um, I work at a school. I work at a semester program on a farm. And okay. that's, a new, that's a new thing where I actually went as a student, which mm. is how I came to Vermont in the first place. So I guess it's relevant. I can say it. It's okay. Okay. Um, it's, I live in a tiny village in the middle of nowhere in Vermont. And this school happens to be in the same village. And um, when I was 16, I was actually living in New York City and I spent a semester at this school, the mountain school, and, um, and kind of was hooked into Vermont. And so since I was 16, and then there were these other kind of like cosmic things that happened in Vermont that got me back here. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's start right there. So yeah. tell us what the novel is about. Yeah. Well, I mean, the novel is about a, I guess if you look at it from like the plot itself, if that's where you started, 
you would say the novel is about a woman who lives in rural Vermont with her two children and her husband, who's a philosophy professor at a college nearby. And she feels trapped by domesticity and by motherhood and by her choices. And she's driving away from her family in the middle of the night. And through kind of, as you said before, this sewing and stitching together, she pieces together and recollects memories of what brought her to this moment, recollections, memories, as she's driving towards her destination away from her family. Um, and you discover that she has been um, seeking community through books that she's reading by women writers, and she's trying to write a novel to be in conversation with these women. And she, she has become sidetracked by a fixation on a woman that she was originally using for character development for her novel that she discovers online. Um, and I think on the one hand, one might say, oh, this is a, you know, a, it's a book about motherhood and about privilege and about the trappings of choice and about like one woman's quest to find meaning. Um, and I guess I like to think of that, I'd like to think of it, and I thought of it while writing as looking at a person with a psyche who is ensnared in a system of capital and what the ensnarement has to do with both living close to the land and the creeping in of technology in the kind of character of the internet and social media and how both of those things assert themselves in her psyche that kind of informs her awareness of herself as inextricable from this system of capital. I was hoping you would read from page 25 the section that starts on 25 and goes to the middle of 26 and then also um, on 34. I was hoping you would read from page 25 and then also um, on 34. Okay. I keep looping around to the same feeling, fear in general, about being an adult. The weight of motherhood is a backpack full of stones, like soil, like a bomb. It's the kind of feeling that grips me like I'm in a foggy valley early in the morning, surrounded by thick white air, unable to see even my hand in front of my face. And I don't realize that a hundred feet up, the sun is out. I have no way of knowing. Cherish it, a woman told me at the market, smiling at the kids. I wanted to punch her in the fucking face. I go over the details again and again of the things I've done wrong, and when I'm hovering over them like a drone, replaying the moments where I tripped up, where I failed, I start to feel better. Because I'm important. It's me, after all, who keeps the trains running on time. It's me who makes dinner, who is in charge of no one drowning in the bath, who washes up, scrubs dried egg off the edges of the table, scoops dead flies from the corners of the windowsill with the sponge. Sometimes, though, I wonder if my children really love me. I think from a place that feels rational that they just need me. Then I think that maybe it isn't even need at all, but an addiction, that if they ran out of their supply of me, they'd have symptoms of withdrawal, but then the need would vanish. Or the need would come back, but it could be satiated by something or someone else. 
Yes, it's just addiction. They don't even know me. Their knowledge of me is simply how they can get from me what they need. That is my character, a surface to reflect my children's desires, to indicate what trick they need to pull out of their hats to relieve the itch that only I can scratch. Okay. The other day, I was doing something on my phone. I knew I should have been focusing on the leaf rubbings I had planned to make with my son, but I was distracted. Finn asked me in his high, crackling voice, what does complexion mean? The way your skin looks and feels. What does attend mean? To go to something, to be somewhere. What does selfish mean? To think only of yourself. What does grief mean? Uncontrollable sadness that never ends, only changes. What is my sadness? My mind races and my thoughts are jumbled together like the random detritus at the bottom of a purse. That I am more like my mother than I wish to admit. That I have been set on a treadmill and it's moving too fast. That my kids can't be sheltered from the shit of the world. That my daughter might be raped in an empty parking lot. That my son will benefit from a culture that degrades women. That both could be killed in a shooting at school. That one of them could be the shooter. That we are being recorded so algorithms can sell us things we don't need. That I've lost my chance at living in northern Italy as a 20-something, riding my bike around, diving into lakes. That I have enough money to craft a certain type of vacation fantasy, but not enough money to actually act on it this winter or next winter. That even if I changed my mind about wanting kids, I couldn't erase the fact that I have them already. That I'm trapped. That I'm responsible for them. And that if I left them, which I just did, I'd be a horrible person and everyone would say so. And I would never be able to escape the pain of both being a bad mother and being without them, even if I got on a plane and went to Italy and never came back. So I, um, I watched or, and listened to a few interviews with you and everybody wants to ask you, is this really about you? Is this autofiction? You know, oh, I noticed from your extensive one-line bio that you live <laughs> in Vermont with your husband and children. Oh, the main character, you know, in this novel lives in Vermont with her husband and two children. And you answer this question, I think, really uh, wonderfully. And you basically say, no, it's not autofiction, auto but of course, these events are taken um, from real life. And in fact, you say uh, that you said somewhere that the slippage between memoir, fiction, documentary is in some way more important or differently important for women writers. Um, I don't know if you still stand by that because we all, when we talk about our books, sometimes say things that five minutes later, we're like, I said that? I don't mean that. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. I'm like, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I do. I do. I remember saying Yeah. That. So I was thinking about when I said that and I was trying to remember what the context of the conversation was. And I think I was talking about some artists and filmmakers who I'm inspired, who I've been inspired by. I mean, I've been inspired by and influenced by so many different people and artists from even the ones that I don't like, you know, even the ones that haven't moved me. And so, um, but I think the ones that really feel important to me are the ones that play with the idea of what is true and what really happened versus what is a creation of something fake, basically. Mm -hmm. 
And, and I come to it again and again. And every time I come to a new artist or writer or musician, I mean, anything, I, it's like I'm hit with a ton of bricks and I go, oh my God, this is the truth. And, and I've looked, I haven't really analyzed this in any kind of academic way. And in fact, I sort of feel like it's been a really wonderful experience to be asked these questions because I can really like speak expositorially on things that otherwise have been so intuitive. I think that, and I don't know if I can speak to the, to gender in a way where I'm not going to like hem and haw and feel like I don't even know what gender even means, um, except in the context of my own experience. But what I can say is that I think there is so much about what really happens in a woman's life where you think you can't make this shit up. And there is so little that even I, and I had a pretty progressive education and a pretty good education where like I went to college and, um, and like, you know, wrote an honors thesis and I still feel like my education was really like heteropatriarchal even and then everything that wasn't heteropatriarchal European white European was a subcategory of that which was the norm and so like everything else was like a buffet of subcategory and then I could be like okay well if I'm living the norm and I'm living and breathing the norm then I go to the buffet and then I choose from the subcategories and so like at the time at various times in my life, I've chosen different subcategories from the buffet. And then I sort of digest them almost as one might a hobby in a way where you're like, well, this isn't, you know, this is just the subcategory of the norm. This is the extra that informs the norm or that somehow like fleshes out the norm. I think there's this myth in literature that um, to be a good writer or to be an effective storyteller, one has to make up something. And if you make something up that's impressive and that is the newest thing that's anyone ever made that anyone has ever made up that that is progress somehow because that's the new idea that no one else has thought of. And I think that that's I'm so bored by that in literature because every, it feels so fake to me. It just feels like even if that were to have happened in real life, I don't feel that it really happened. And it almost reads as if I am watching the writer fake it till they make it. And I don't want to see that. I just want to go right to the root of human experience. And I don't understand why it is so often in conventional or like commercial literature that that has become a norm as if human experience is not complex enough. You could say the same thing over and over. And in fact, if you look historically at myths and storytelling and oral storytelling cultures, um, they were the same stories told over and over again with a different storyteller who told them every time. And each time they were told, they were told a little bit differently. And I see it in my kids actually, and this is what blew it open for me. It was not from an academic place and it wasn't even from a place of like, I'm a writer and I'm going to discover this pathway into my work. It was like, I was a person who was steeped in the world below the soil, basically. That's where I was for a decade. I was below the soil.
And I was like, I want to be a soil biologist. I mean, I was so fascinated by this. I never thought I was good at science. It was like, that wasn't for me. And here I was, an editor in the world of agriculture, just steeped in shit and muck and like mycorrhizal fungi and bacteria and the gut and like the soil food web and the ether and spiritual science. It was like mind blown. And at the same time, I'm having kids. And, you know, beyond just like the act of having children, which is giant in and of itself, it was then as my kids started to develop an intellectual life, even the tiniest bit, reading to them and then telling stories to them. I would read the same books all the time. They wanted the same books every time, 100 times, over and over and over again. And I would start to notice a pattern in the books that they found interesting, in the thousands and thousands of books that we had and that we went to the library. And it like, you know, just so many books. And so I noticed that the books that they kept wanting to read over and over again were fairy tales. And every time we would read them, there would be like a new layer that was discovered in the fairy tale. It was like, whereas at first, you know, my daughter just wanted it because it had the pretty dresses. And then the next time we read it, it was like, oh, and she's strong. And then the third time it was like, oh, she's not actually strong. She's just pretending to be strong. You know, anyway, and I just realized that like, if we just had like 30 books or 10, you know, and we read them over and over and over and over and over again. That stitched together with experience in life, coupled with some spiritual guidance from somewhere, is like one potential way of like experiencing humanness. And so all of that is to say, I'm interested in the stitching together of real life, honestly, as opposed to this pretense that, no, there's none of me in here because of course, since I'm this intellectual writer, I don't project onto my characters. <laughs> like, I don't write from a place of desire and shame and jealousy. Like, I write from an objective place. So I feel like maybe that is fundamentally, quote unquote, feminine to not assume dominance over reality itself. <laughs> to just say, yes, it's, you know, let's just let reality live in the space and that's okay. It doesn't mean that I am the character in the book. That's reductive. But if we can just acknowledge that there's projection, then it, we're allowing for a, a like psychological nuance that's like somehow, I don't know, like maybe more holistic somehow. I don't know if that's feminine or whatever. And I feel like men have been doing it forever, but people just call it something different. Um, you know, and I, I love the word originality because it's so often used to mean inventive, inventing something new, whereas, you know, it, it, I love it to think about, yeah, it's about the origin of something. And that's a story you tell over and over and over again, right? Like, you know, I mean, all the stories are basically like, how did I get here? What's scary? What's going to happen to me? Is the world Okay. You know, those are like basically all the stories. <laughs> um, so I um, decided to leave my family uh, in early March before the pandemic. You know, it was it was here, but we didn't really know exactly what was happening. And I was going to go to AWP and then I decided that was not a good idea and unethical. But 
I needed to go away from my family at least for a few days. And I knew that it was, you know, without exaggerating, nearly a matter of life or death. Like I was, I was beyond my capacity to care for this family and, and sort of stay sane. My son was going through this very serious depressive episode. I was not sure whether he was safe. I was staying up pretty much all night. Um, you know, I have two other kids. It was, it was, it was a level of, of maternal vigilance that I had been sustaining for a very long time and which I already knew I couldn't continue to sustain. And then it got worse. And we sort of came out a, just a tiny bit of like what seemed like the true part of the emergency. And he seemed a little bit, you know, safer and more grounded. And I could tell that I was really losing track of reality. And I was starting to have panic attacks. And I knew I had to get out of there. And I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And I packed this tiny little bag um, and Milkweed had sent me your book, um, cause people send me books <clears throat> and I picked it because it was short. Um, I love short novels <laughs> and I also picked it because on the cover it has this totally, this, this fabulous, I also picked it because of the title. I'm obsessed with shame and I, and I think that like everything about my writing and almost everything about my life is basically revolves around this question of shame. Um, and then there's this blurb on the front uh, by Sheila Hetty, which says a delicious, important moral corrective of a novel. And I was like, well, let's see what that is. <laughs> anyway, I grab the book just off the, you know, um, table and I, go to the airport I, I I book myself a flight and I go to this house that um I had bought about f four or five years ago in Maine that we'd been coming to and usually we rent it but nobody was um renting it so I was like great I'm going there I bought a one-way ticket hmm. um I put on a mask at that point you know COVID was just sort of really hitting start just starting to hit New York and I started reading the book in the car on the way um, to the airport. And I, 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 I really felt I am leaving and I'm really not, I'm not sure I'm ever going to come back. And then I got here and it was passages, you know, like the ones that you've just read, um, you know, in addition to this, the plot, which is of a mother leaving her family, you don't really know why, you don't really know where she's going, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, but these, you know, motherhood is a backpack full of stones, like soil, like a bomb. I was like, yes, yes, I, that is true. Um, you know, or or even this, the, the racing mind um, of that my daughter might be raped in an empty parking lot, that my son would benefit from, from a culture that degrades women, that you know both of them could be killed in a shooting, that one of them could be the shooter. I was like, my mind has not stopped doing that, and that's part of what has maybe made my kids safe and maybe has nothing to do with their safety and is 
what is going to be the death of me if I can't stop this. But this feeling of being trapped and being on this journey and not knowing the outcome of the journey hit me so hard. And this at this point, I hadn't really told anyone, like, I'm leaving my family. I just was like, oh, I'm going to Maine for a little while. Um, you know, what happened to me was complicated because as soon as the pandemic really seemed like super, super dangerous and also like really hitting New York where where my family was, I was like, oh, my therapist actually was like, you have to get your whole family up to Maine um, with you because you can and it's safer. Um, so then I, I, so I tried to leave my family, um, but then within a period of five days, I was actually quarantined with all five of us and we couldn't even go out basically <laughs> for five months. So I'm sorry, I'm laughing. <laughs> no, there's no other thing to do other than laugh. Anyway, in those few days, I finished your novel and um, I'm not going to say what happens in the book, um, but what happened for me was a realization that I wasn't going to leave my family, but I was going to end my marriage. And I, it, it was very interesting to come to that understanding um, while reading about this mother who in some ways I identified with, in other ways I really don't. She's much younger than I am um, in the book, and um, I was going from the city uh, to this rural place. She was going from this rural place, you know, to the city. Um, in some ways, I was more like the woman that she was that she saw on Instagram, um, you know, that she sees on social media. Um, that she's that she's both invented and discovered. And in other ways, I really not at all like that woman and in fact feel totally tormented by all these social media representations, you know, of motherhood and just being alive and items. Um, items. So that <laughs> items. Well, that yeah. So this is not a question. <laughs> um, I just wanted to say, you know, this was like my entry into the book. Um, I do want to ask you what, what, how do you, I have an interpretation of this, but what do you make of that phrase that Sheila Hetty uses that it's a mm -hmm. delicious, important moral corrective of a novel? Like, why is it not just like a really urgent, compelling story about a woman and we don't really have that many, you know, uh, complex, authentic, full-bodied um, descriptions of young, you know, mother characters. Like, why is it a moral corrective? I think it is. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, I mean, I am really grateful to Sheila because I feel that Sheila was one of the my first readers who who really got it who really got what I was trying to do who I, I didn't know Sheila at all really I had met her and I had had a couple conversations with her but when she read the book um she was reading it you know cold and um and so I felt that it was almost as if 
Well, and I was a fan of hers already. Mm-hmm. So I felt that she was understanding me in the way that I felt I already understood her by reading her work. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very spiritual experience for me. And actually the interesting thing about Sheila is that I met her at a writing workshop where I I never go to writing workshops. I have never done this. I went to one um, because it was in my home state. There was like all sorts of reasons why I could do it and rationalize it. And also like you, I had to get the fuck away from my family. Mm -hmm. And so like that was my journey. Um, and I remember like, I'm terrified of flying and I got on the plane and I was like, I might die today. This was two years ago or no, I can't remember when it was. Um, I think it must've been, no, it was last fall. I have no concept of time anymore. (laughs) Um, but, um, last summer anyways. And I got to this writing workshop. It was like, I was living in a dream. I met Sheila briefly. We had an energetic connection. She read the book. She got the book. And all of a sudden, it was like what had been internal before became a reality. Mm. So what was it was almost like waking up. And the, and the reality was not that Sheila Hetty read my novel. It was that she understood it, which meant that it existed. Mm-hmm. And it was like that feeling that we that we long for, I think, as people to be understood and to have someone see us and say, I see you and to really see us and to see us and our shadow hand in hand and to say, I like all of that. All of that makes sense to me. You're not crazy. And I think that that is a very gendered um, state of mind, I would say, because for who knows how long, centuries upon centuries, um, women have been disbelieved and they have been called crazy and they've been called hysterical and they have been, they have been silenced and they have been, you know, really um, misunderstood, I would say. And, and their power has been misidentified and misattributed. And motherhood has been one of the only things that women have had where they experience fully the power of what a woman can do. What women have endured, what women have like risen up. You see it right now in this moment, in this political moment that is being led predominantly by black women and women of color. You see how, like, I mean, it is just a barrage of insanity of how bad the system is and how bad it has always been in particular. And right now we're focusing on, you know, in in specifically black men dying at the hands of basically white supremacist gang culture, which we call the police. And um, anyway, I just, and you see these, and I don't know, you just see the, like, the pain of losing a child, I don't know, like <laughs> the weight of womanhood <laughs> is something that is just has been cast aside with a joke about PMS, you know, cast aside in terms of the vote, cast aside in so many different ways that has been systematized and internalized. And as a culture, I think being 
a woman is still like really under discussed and underdeveloped. And it sounds crazy because, you know, we've come so far, quote unquote, and like, how long have we had the vote? And like, how long have we, you know, there's CEOs with tits and, you know, like it's happening everyone. And like, and it's not that women are oppressed. It's more that the psychodynamic nature of humanity is just missing. It's just underdeveloped because of the way that the system has privileged na certain narratives over others. This, the reason why ultimately this turned into a novel, which like began as basically a conversation with myself after I quit therapy, <laughs> um, literally like an actual, like me, I talk to myself out loud when I take walks and when I go on runs, I just did it on the way to this interview. Um, that it started that way and then it turned into an actual writing project that turned into a novel because it had to, but originally it was like trying to figure myself out, like trying to figure out like what, how could I be so afraid, rageful, trapped and stifled while also full of joy and delight and love and like where was the model for that and how did that make sense and and there are you know there have been a lot of these incredible novels written by women and in fact I have discovered a lot of them recently from other countries where I'm like oh my god this was in another country written 25 years ago that I'm read that I'm just discovering now it's just being made available and mm -hmm. every time I'm like it's as if I've never experienced the feeling of being seen. Like every time it's the same feeling. What is that about? And I, and I know that there are other people that feel that way. And I think that is, to me, what's so magical about art and literature is that it can be our companion along the way. And like you picked it up through some cosmic influence or whatever. It was short. That's good. You know, like... And you took it with you, and even though it wasn't necessarily what was happening to you, it had happened to the narrator in some way, and that energy existed. And so you were no longer fully alone. And so in terms of moral corrective, I mean, I don't think that Sheila meant it in a way like, this book is going to bestow wisdom on us that's going to help us, like, you know it's going to help us mine deeply into morality, but more just that let's not reduce it to another book written by a woman that we can so easily cast aside and categorize as a subcategory. Let's put the masculine terminology there so that we take note because what we do so often, and I'm totally obsessed with like metadata and categorization and like everybody just like, you know, we won't go down that road because I could really go down that road in terms of like how books are even marketed, how art is even marketed to people and how it even gets to people. Um, and it's not always one way or the other. But I think that women are still talking to each other across time periods, you know, and you say this in your book, which I absolutely loved um, in Mother's you say crypto, use the, the term cryptomnesia and this idea of how 
we experience something and it becomes, and it's so true to our own experience that we internalize it deep, deep into our unconscious. And the next time something, you know, we are reminded of that thing, whether it's what we saw or read or listened to, we retrieve it from our unconscious as if it was this like natural intuitive thought that just erupted from our psyche. And that we are, and I think that women are still comforted more and more over time, knowing that this Mm -hmm. is something that has like persisted across time. And I think, you know, I don't think I live in a matrilineal matriarchal society. And if I did, maybe I would have a different experience to my own self. And so I, and yet, I am a beneficiary of the patriarchal system in ways that many women are not. And so I'm not every woman. For me, it's about, as you said really beautifully in the beginning, this idea of stitching things together. And I think one thing is never one thing without another thing right next to it. And a mirror is not a mirror if there's a mirror behind you when you're looking at a mirror. And that with every with every rock unturned there is a universe below it mm-hmm. and it's and i think it's really easy and it's something that it's something that Sheila and i Sheila Hetty and i talk about is this idea of like how easily women writers in particularly are reduced into a subcategory even by people who don't know they're doing it as a way to Part of it is like in critical thinking, it's like you want to group things together because it helps with comparison and analysis. And so it's helpful to group. But on the other hand, um, I'm not sure men are grouped in the same way. I think male writers in particular are seen of as individuals with original thought. And women are seen as part of a trend. And I know that's like essentializing it. but And so I guess what I think about women writers Mm -hmm. who draw from life as if if life were a well and the the female writer or the woman writer was at the top of the well pulling up the little bucket the book that they're writing is the bucket it's not the well it's the bucket like and we just think oh it's the well because there's the bucket full of the water that came Mm -hmm. from the well and I think mm-hmm. that the more buckets from that water come out, you know, the more we can acknowledge there was a well to begin with. So that's why I feel like drawing from life, not just I have to, because that's just how I write. Um, mm-hmm. It's how I make sense of things. And it's how I like build a theory. But also it's, I don't even know what real even is all the stories about people figuring themselves out are these like, you know, hero Joseph Campbell quest narratives, you know, uh, and just like when we see on TV, you know, people going off and conquering something or figuring something out, you know, if it's a, if it's a mother, I'm screaming at the television, like, where are your fucking kids? Like, how are you doing this work? Who's watching your children? How's this happening? You know, if all of the stories of how a person can figure out who they are, um, erase the fact of children, 
you know, what do you do at this moment in your life if you're trying to figure yourself out and there's no story of someone like you? I think it's interesting because I think about everyone has had a mother. Yes. You know, like even if they're dead, you never met them. It was a father. It was a man. You know, it's like it doesn't matter, but we've all been mothered or we've all experienced the lack of mothering and missed the mother. Like motherhood is so universal. Mm-hmm. And yet it has become this subcategory as if it's just for women. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And now let's expand it into others who want to identify as mothers. When it is actually as universal as something like class, as something like power, mm-hmm. as something, any other social construct that relies on a belief system and buy-in, like large cultural buy-in that says, yes, this is, this is what we do. This is our governmental, like, response to pregnancy Mm. state by state you know like government by government this is how we respond to this social system and I think you know I mean I talk about this in the book of the idea of like being mothered by someone who was not your biological mother Mm -hmm. counts as being mothered but if that person has children who was taking care of those children and who was mothering those children so motherhood itself like class is like so layered and and I wonder why, or what I want, what I'm interested in is like why motherhood isn't seen as a metaphor for power. And when there's a book about motherhood, people talk about motherhood, which is, which I think is because we so badly want to talk about it because it's so <laughs> untalked about. And even recently, there's been this fatigue about talking about motherhood, as if enough already with the narcissism about motherhood. And it's like, wait a minute, you know, we this we don't say enough about politics. We don't say enough about World War fucking two. How many books come out about World War two? That's fine. Let's keep talking about World War two. But for whatever reason, motherhood is a story that we've become tired of. And it's because we've feminized it and because we've decided that in commerce, femininity only sells if it's, sub- if it's sublimating to the, to the masculo-sexual, heteropatriarchal, whatever you want to call it, world that seeks to remain in power, seeks to remain the norm, and to have all other things be subcategories of the norm. And one thing that I have really heard from male readers, actually, fathers and not fathers, is that this book really speaks to them too. And in fact, I had a man say to me, um, I read this book in one sitting, and then later when I was vacuuming, I couldn't stop thinking about how the narrator finds control through vacuuming. Mm. And as I was doing that, all of these connections were being made in my mind, and then I stopped myself because I remembered, this book is not intended for me. Huh. And I was like, wait, why isn't it intended for you? And he was like, well, because I'm not the audience, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, why? Why are you not the audience? Because the woman is a, the narrator's a woman. She's a mother. There's a woman on the cover. Um, I don't know. Like all the blurbers are women. I mean, all of these sort of systems, these like, these lights go off about the system. Like this is not for you. And I think that, 
that's like sad, mm-hmm. first of all, and also interesting. And it, but it, it allowed for an interesting conversation. But I also think that there's something to be said about if we saw motherhood as a potential metaphor for power, how would we interpret things differently? Because what we do is when, I mean, at least right now, it seems like we have this binary or one binary, which is like you either have to reject motherhood and then you can be your full person without the trappings of raising children, or you can fully embrace it. And um, so much so that like your whole life is about just like quilting and wooden toys and just stripping your identity away for everything that isn't just like everything for the children. And I think you could look at that as like you could look at class or something. Like how do we, I had an interesting conversation with a woman who said, there's all of this emphasis put on this like quote unquote progressive anti-capitalist way of parenting is through the really, you know, biodynamic wooden toy Mm -hmm. that I can't afford. And me and my community have the shitty plastic toy with the ugly cartoon character and we pass it around and we pass it around and we get the mileage out of Mm. it. And to me, that's anti-capitalist parenting. And so it's just how you look at it. And, And so to me, I'm interested in like, what is real and then what is commerce Mm -hmm. and how does commerce and capital and like the structure of buying and selling and power through money kind of affect our psyches in a way and how are in a way that we agree to like we say we agree to that we agree to give you our data we're giving you our data in response for streaming this show because we want the show okay and hold in return on. hold on we're giving you that okay <laughs> i Sorry. no 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 two more quick things about this because it's very much about a woman trying to find herself and stories about herself in the world but absolutely not having access to these stories hurts men deeply, deeply, deeply. It hurts non-binary people deeply, deeply, deeply because, you know, not all men are going to fit into, uh, okay, you're either on a search for the Holy Grail or you're Odysseus or you're Penelope, and those are the only choices, right? The other thing about motherhood, if viewed as a lens, maybe almost more than a metaphor, is it it can teach us something uh, about certainly about separation and attachment and also uh, really serve to break down a lot of these binaries that are necessary to patriarchy and white supremacy, right? So like this idea of individualism um, versus connection and individual and the hero versus the weak person who, you know, needs others or who cares for others. And that, you know, it, it does come back to power in the end. But I think, you know, I was even thinking when you mentioned my book, Mothers, a line came to me that I'd forgotten from that book, which is, I, I think at several times in there, I say, I'm the mother who stays. I'm obsessed with being the mother who stays. I define myself as the mother who stays in 
response to my mother who I viewed as leaving, right? And I think this is also part of why Sheila was able to connect with your book and able to see it not just as a fabulously told story, but as a moral corrective because she had a mother who in a way left, but everybody survived. She had a connection with her mother and she figured out something about herself by thinking about her mother's story, thinking about motherhood, not as the choice between having children of her own or not having children, but also motherhood as being a daughter, right? So Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that as you were talking, like, yeah, everybody either had a mother or lost a mother or had the absence of a mother. And, um, why, how did I get to the point where I thought there were only two choices for me? I'm the mother who stays or what? I'm not a mother at all. These kinds of binaries and these kinds of ways that we basically, my therapist would say, scare the shit out of ourselves because mm-hmm. there's no model for, you know, uh, nuance. for nuance, for complexity. This affects everybody. You know, not just women, not just mothers, not just fathers, not just men. Um, And I think that that's really important. Well, what about the men who want to stay home? Say, it was interesting. Someone from Brazil just recently tweeted something to me about how, like, how she she was wondering if my last, if I was writing under a pseudonym. Hmm. And I was like, whoa, that's (laughs) such an interesting and bizarre (laughs) Bizarre question. No, I mean, clearly I don't really exist in the media. (laughs) Um, But like, so that was funny. But, and I said, well, no, why? And she said, oh, because your last name is Goodman, good man. Interesting. And I, I thought that would be such a perfect pseudonym to use because a good man, you know, would never be put in this kind of predicament right the good man is is any man it's the man um it's the man who works for hard for his money or it's the man who subsumes himself for his family either way he's doing god's work you know and i just thought that was so interesting and i think about like how because i have the same experience with my mother that you describe where i was i felt like i was um left by her Mm -hmm. in 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 her quest for finding herself and for a long time I was angry and then I realized that I was mothered in many different ways and I'm fine now so how can I accept what her limitations were as a person as I accept my own limitations as a person and I was thinking about how (laughs) I was so excited to have children. I would have had kids at like age 16 Mm -hmm. if I had gotten pregnant. I would have been like, I'm having these kids and I'm going to put my backpack on and we're going to go camping forever or whatever. Like I just wanted babies because I wanted to stop being a daughter Mm -hmm. and I wanted to be liberated into motherhood. Because if I was no longer just a daughter, then I would have control over my life because I would not be tyrannized by motherhood. (laughs) I would get to be the one who transcends, the one who doesn't make the same mistakes, as you say, the one who stays, the one who cuts up the sandwiches, makes the cookies for the snack, like the Bernstein Bears. Yep. You know, like never gets angry, doesn't show rage. 
And there was like a glimmer of that with little babies, you know, where like as long as they were sleeping through the night and not chewing on your nipples, like it was beauty <laughs> and you had enough money to put food on the table. There were moments where like this was my work. This was the work that I had to do in the world. And I'm obsessed with the idea of work and labor and like motherhood as labor too. Yeah. But, um, but then when they developed an intellectual life, all of a sudden I started to be the mother that I feared that I would always, that I would never be. And I watched it start to happen. I remember the first moment that I yelled at my children and I was like, okay, that's going to be the one time that I do that. <laughs> and it's never going to happen again. And then I remember like being so sad the next time it happened. And then the next time, and then after 10 times, I was like, well, fuck this. Like <laughs> it's over. I've failed and I'm just going to sink into failure. But but then it's like, but rage and anger is a human emotion. And if we can't figure out how to deal with rage and how to come back from that and how, how to, if compassion is way over here on this side and rage is over here on this side, how can we figure out as humans a way to bring them closer together in balance and what better way to do that than to fail constantly in front of your child in a compassionate way. And so I've started thinking about it that way, about the story we're telling ourselves is the good versus the evil. Mm -hmm. And that is actually been structured through narrative that we have consumed through commerce. And that if we can separate ourselves as readers from that and change our bookshelves, maybe, I don't know, but like everyone's talking about revising the canon. It's like, let's do it, people. How about we just take the words, the canon yeah. out of the lexicon yeah. and just like it, there is no canon. That was a moment of structural narrative choice that was created through commerce. So let's like move into a new thing anyway. But so I feel like the more of these kinds of stories that I hear layered and layered and layered and the different layers of stories. Cause I remember when I read like beloved by Toni Morrison for the first time, I read that, I think the same year I read pride and prejudice by Jane Austen. And I remember thinking both of those books I related to on such a deep level. And yet neither one of those books I could identify mm. with the characters. And what is that? Like, that's a beauty. Like that's beautiful. And so Anyway, I'm digressing, blah, 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 but. Okay, I need to pee. <laughs> okay. When we come back, we are going to talk about consumerism, capitalism. Okay, I'll do like a fake, I'll do like a fake ad, a fake ad for, for magical golden tampons. <laughs> I wish the show was sponsored by magical <laughs> golden tampons. <laughs> capitalism, Okay. In relation to the shame, I guess when I was writing this book, I was trying, it was in response to a question I was asking myself constantly, which was, what is my work in the world? And it didn't really refer to my job or like a passion, but the idea of like work as something existential or spiritual or social or political and a kind of like meaning through labor, through time spent doing something that I didn't know how, because I had the choice, because I went to a liberal arts college where they said, you can do whatever you want. Um, and they forgot to tell us that we needed to actually get a job 
to pay for the thing. Many people didn't, and honestly, they're not that much better off um, because the paralysis of choice is something real, even though it's a privilege. And so basically what I did was I had to get a job and I had to make money. And the way that I figured out how to make money was by getting a job in publishing because I thought, because I couldn't get a job at a restaurant. I wanted to work in a restaurant because I had worked in a restaurant as a teenager. And it was New York City, so all the cool restaurants, you had to have like a PhD in cool restaurants. And I didn't have that. And so um, I didn't get any jobs. And I like was doing these little like 50 word movie reviews for these free alternative weeklies. And they put me on like the rape revenge beat. And it was like literally horrifying. And um, anyway, so I got a job in publishing as an editorial assistant. And it was like, okay, I'm going to make some money. I'm going to live in my mom's apartment. I'm going to figure out how I can like do my art. Like flash forward 15 years or whatever. And the answer is, well, <laughs> capital is, I mean, basically money, money is important and we need money. And if you don't have a lot of money already, you need to make money. And in order to make money, you have to decide what your bottom line is. And that's going to be sort of, I think, maybe where the like foundation of like your ethics are going to lie, is like whatever your bottom line is for making money. And for me, it was like, okay, I was privileged enough that I could take a shitty paid entry-level publishing job because I believed in literature and if I could learn the business of literature then that would at least keep me like ethically connected to art which I believed in no matter what sorry um, is that your mom again no it's my work <laughs> it always comes down to one or the other um, <laughs> I know my mom is listening now too and I really do love my mother um, basically, now I've gotten off track because like my mother got into my head. Um, so, <laughs> so basically for me, it was like you spend time as, you know, in college thinking about like ethics as something that, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just like about the goodness of your heart. It's like, are you a good person? Are you a bad person? And like, how do you decide? But when you go into the workforce, which many people go into either if they're not, you know, like involved in child labor against their will, they are often involved in labor very early on. And money is, is the only thing that matters. But if you're privileged enough that money isn't the only thing that has to matter and you can choose how to make meaning in your life other than that, um, then that like allows you to almost like structure your life around ethics. Basically, it's close to impossible to live fully ethically, even if you have enough money and even if you try extremely hard to live according to your ethics because the system of capitalism has created a web that none of us, I believe, are inextricable from. We are all ensnared in this net, regardless of how not ensnared we think we are. 
And I think like the level of whether, like people who are poor know they're ensnared in capital, right? And like they, that's something, that's a knowledge that no one need to teach. No one needed to teach them. That is intrinsic to their reality, their daily reality. And, and yet there are people who really believe through their consumer choices, through their spiritual beliefs or their actions that they can somehow opt out of being an oppressor. And if you can opt out of being an oppressor, then you can be a good person. And if you can be a good person, then you will go to whatever heaven you've decided is the heaven that you're going to go to. And then like you can sleep easy at night. And I think that there is a level of superiority and blindness among the progressive elite, certainly the neoliberal elite, but I would just say the liberal elite that thinks of itself as outside of capital and fancies itself as morally superior, not only to those who are like completely controlled by money 100% in order to survive, but also to people who are mercenary and feed off of the, you know, oppression of others, literally, and know it. (laughs) And there's something in between. And I feel like what happens is there's this like moral, I don't know if you would call it like, I don't know what it would be, but um, what the term would be. But I think it's really interesting how commerce how basically like trends and culture which is dominated by a certain which is often dominated by a certain subset of that so-called progressive elite can kind of continuously mythologize capitalism as something apart from art apart from progressivism apart from utopianism apart from environmentalism and can kind of section out these things conveniently so that they can sleep at night. <laughs> and I think that um, I, I'm interested in this idea of going back to the land and the back to the land movement and the idea of living simply and living off the land, which is as close as one, and I'm using air quotes here, as close as one can come to like the true nature of humanity is like man on the land. You can't get any less capitalist than growing your own tomato and then eating your tomato. It's like that's sort of this, what the the myth of capitalism is built on is this idea of land and its purity and then we, and then we exist within land and, and it all builds out from there. And I, when I moved to Vermont, I was fleeing this this capitalist commerce. I didn't even know, like, okay, I had studied social theory in college, but, like, I was, like, you know, the ditzy one in the social theory group who, like, didn't become a professor. I'm literally, like, the only person in my social theory group who didn't become a fucking professor. (laughs) I was just another person who was just making money and just – I was, like, a cog. And I was so depressed, and I just – got fired, thank God, from my job because 2008 happened, among other things. And I had to leave because I could no longer afford New York. And I was so, I was just like, I am out of the city. The city is, I was like Google image searching the mountains on my lunch break. I'm out of here. So I had a connection to Vermont and I literally like already had a train ticket the next day. It was like, it had, I was already planning a visit 
And I basically never left. And I was obsessed, I would say for like, at least like eight full years, I would say, I was obsessed with doing everything I possibly could to convince myself that I was not the shitty thing that I was fleeing from, that I was the ethical thing, the tomato growing progressive utopianist who was doing all the right things, building topsoil and saving the world. Well, forget about saving the world, just not being bad. I was like not Mm -hmm. being an extractive force. And I didn't talk to any of my New York friends. I completely fell off the map. I went into this place of fundamentalism that at the time felt so politically important to me that it didn't seem like fundamentalism. And I really did believe that like this was the only true way (laughs) that like that I could be a moral person. And then I had kids. And the second that I had a child and I was very tired and I no more had the rigor that I had to go out there and, and shovel up that, you know, blah, 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 and save all the worms by not tilling and all those things. Like I was tired and I still needed to work and I had no time. And all of a sudden I realized that vigor is not something that is innate to people. And it's not an ethical choice. It's social. Vigor is socialized. You get it through class. You get it through capital. You get it through like extraction, inheritance. Like it's just not so simple. And like there's this book, The Good Life, that I read that was all about these binaries between like what is good and what is, you know, quote unquote, the dirty urban existence. And it was just so colonial, this idea that like basically you already had to be wealthy in order to live the good life. That was the only way. And I happened to be privileged. I happened to be that kind of person. So when I started enrolling my kids in the public school and I started really engaging in the actual community in which I lived, I saw myself for what I really was, which was continually an extractive person who was not separate from the systems that I thought myself so morally superior to. And so (laughs) I realized that for a long time I had been living ethically. I had thought that I was living ethically and that I was, that that was enough. And I realized that I was actually engaged in what I think Virginia Woolf referred to as private contentment. Mm -hmm. And that the idea of private contentment is really different from redistribution of power. And that private contentment often is is actually what is happening (laughs) when it's being called anti-capitalist or progressivism or whatever. And so to me, the shame, as it were, is that moment of realizing, oh, right, (laughs) There's the mirror that I'm holding in front of myself and there's a mirror behind that and a mirror behind that. And it's not so simple. So, yeah. And I think that that's also part of the moral corrective nature of this novel, which is, you know, within the world of the novel, Alma has a lot of the same struggles that you're describing that you've had in terms of trying to distinguish between what's ethical living and what's private contentment. And then 
what to do with her time or her labor or her attention or her energy becomes, you know, really critical, not just in giving her a sense of personal fulfillment, but of a sense that she is ethical. And so she gets offered this um, job uh, to make art for money. And that becomes a whole struggle for her um, because she's good at it, because um, it's sort of externally uh, rewarding. Um, and yet the money part of it is just driving her crazy. Um, and then that's compared to this novel that she's writing. And what are the ethics slash economics of this novel and everything of course is in competition with the children with the marriage to some extent and with the work and the labor of like making her home and the land be productive um or be not fall into a level of disrepair that she can't, you know, come back from. And then on top of that is this sort of, uh, uh, sort of question of like, is living in this rural place kind of by definition more ethical than living in the city? Uh, and that is very complicated and not at all, you know, an easy, you know, binary or claim to make. So I guess, uh, I'm asking you, McKenna Goodman, you now have written this novel and you are currently at this very moment engaged in, unfortunately, marketing it. <laughs> How, where are you right now in this in this sort of crazy making multi mirrored, you know, fun house? Like, can art exist outside of capitalism? Um or is that just like some kind of neoliberal fantasy that we're going to realize is as bullshit as everything else? And how and now that you are in the position of having produced, you know, a product mm -hmm. that you have to sell, how do you feel about that? Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> I've thought about this and um and actually, I think I'm right where I was before when I was writing the book. I think I'm in the exact same place. So I was thinking about this today as um, I was in a dark room. And that was the, the dark room was early motherhood and a feeling of like, I know that I have an intellectual life and yet I have no place for it. It exists in some kind of ether and there's no object. I can't look at it. I can't hold it. I don't know what it is or where it is. And then I, so I'm in the dark room and then as I'm sort of, and we can talk about the genesis, I guess, of the idea for this book, but as I kind of was given this opening into creativity all of a sudden in the dark room, there emerged this like golden light around a door. And I realized there had been a door the whole time in the dark room, but now there was a light behind it so I could see the door. And I knew that I just had to get through the door and I'd get to the light on the other side. So writing the book and doing the first draft 
was this feeling, not like I've done my first draft and now I'm going to sell it, but like I figured this problem out and I used writing as a way to figure out this problem that I had or this question that I had. So I opened the door and there was the light and it was the light of I, I wrote this, it's complete, I figured this out and now I have made it. And then I gave it to my agent and she was, she saw it and it was like good. And then it went out into the world and all of a sudden I'm in the dark room again. Mm. And the dark room was no longer early motherhood and the question of how, what is meaning? What is my labor in the world? It was more, oh my God, who am I? Am I an artist? Is this a piece of art? How do I end this thing? Do I do, do I murder her? Like so many people really wanted me to do, mm. you know, like, should I murder her? What does it mean to be, to murder? <laughs> like, what is that, you know? And like, oh my God. Okay. And then like the rejection and the criticism and this feeling of like, actually, you're not that interesting. This is dazzling, but not that dazzling. And like all the different feedback of the critical world, which existed already in the dark room, but now it was this different darkness. And then it was like, how did I figure out through editing, which I love doing, editing is really important. And mm. I was an editor at the time. How did I figure out how not just to edit this book, but also to, to edit my life to make space for art in a way that actually was going to need more attention and all of a sudden the door appeared again with the light behind the door. And then I opened the door and there was publication and Sheila Hetty reading the book and getting it and then everybody else getting it, et cetera, et cetera. And now I'm in the dark room again <laughs> because, because no one, because, okay, because like the media cycle kind of passed mm -hmm. and like, I don't know when this is going to air or what's going to happen, but like, it's COVID and mm -hmm. we're in the middle of an absolute intense global crisis on so many levels. And I am not going to be the spokesperson for change. And like, there's so many amazing books coming out right now, a lot of which got pushed back because of COVID. So it was like, and I'm seeing that like the limitations again of expectation. And so like I, in terms of the dark room, I feel like to me, it all goes back to the same question, which is like, what is my work in the world? And like, mm -hmm. where do I find meaning? And how can I find happiness? And it's funny because I, I've come late to a lot of things. Like I've come late to a lot of art because of my decade of agriculture. I feel like ask me anything about agriculture and I will be able to answer you with so many different varying sources. But I'm pretty new, like I'm not hip to all the literary trends necessarily. And so I recently have come to some things. And um, one of the recent things I've come to is Agnes Varda's films, mm. which I, I'm happy. I'm happy. And I should have known because I have like loved film for so long. And I worked for Pedro Almodovar when I was 19. And like, I should know better. But for whatever reason, like, I had never seen an Agnes Varda film. And I, um, I can't remember why Agnes Varda came into my consciousness, but I was on a bus ride down to New York um, and it was kind of a literary thing. And I was leaving my family again and I watched on my laptop on the way down Le Bonheur, mm. her film Happiness. 
And it was like, <laughs> I had the same experience that you had. It sounds like when you were driving away where I was like, holy shit, like this movie sums it all up. And yet like, you know, it was a very different movie about very different things about a marriage and children in a very different way. But what I loved about it was that she had been com combining documentary reality and fiction. She had already been doing that so long ago and yet I didn't know. And here I am vibing with it. And so it just like affirmed the feeling of like, we're all in the dark room, mm. you know? And so I think actually that is being an artist <laughs> is what I'm realizing is like being in a dark room. And then every time you see the doorway or you go into the doorway, it's that brief moment. And then you're back in the dark room again. Mm. So I feel like this is right where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> and yet I get to talk to brilliant people like you, which is really amazing. And maybe that's why I did it in the first place was to talk to people like you. I mean, I do think, and maybe we shouldn't even go here and just let listeners read your book, but I do think that, you know, even though it was written before the pandemic, um, it's a really, it's, it's a fantastic novel to read at any point, but I do think some of the themes of it about containment and feeling trapped and questioning um, capitalism and uh you know, I was thinking even when I was talking earlier about the way in which if we use motherhood, not just as a plot, but as a metaphor or a lens, um, one of the things that it helps us with is to examine some of our American exceptionalism and individuality and these notions that are literally killing us um, right now um, in COVID times um, and to rethink, you know, what it means to care for someone else. The problem, as you've said in other interviews, is that that very quickly becomes about, you know, saving your wife and child and, you know, uh, stepping on uh, someone else as you try to get to the emergency exit. Um, you know, that, that in some ways, like what we want and need is a greater sense of connectedness and community and, um, you know, thoughtfulness, whether it's about wearing masks or sh redistributing resources, but actually these global crisis, this, these kinds of global crises um, in some ways, give many people who have resources an excuse to hoard them even more because it's an emergency. Um, and so th that I think that, that the book really touches on these themes and these questions. So, you know, reading it now, I, I think is more important than ever. Motherhood and parenthood for a lot of people has changed very, very radically because children don't go to school anymore. I mean, now labor, what, now everybody's an elementary school teacher on top of all the other labor they're supposed to be doing. That is so interesting because look at how quickly, I mean, we're being forced in a way that we never have in contemporary history to rethink like major systems. And what has become abundantly clear is that the system not only 
doesn't work for most people, but that it was actually designed not to work, Mm -hmm. you know? And you see like every time someone's surprised by another instance of police brutality, I think it's important to remember that actually that is, it is designed that way. And that we can't, we can see that now more than ever because we are being forced to, you know, we're stuck at home, we're watching the news maybe more than ever. We're seeing repetition, repetition of these things happening over. How can this be that this is happening again? And it's interesting, you mentioned schools. And I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know how people, most people are doing it. Like if I can barely figure out my life and I have, I grow, you know, I have this big, beautiful garden and like, you know, support. Like I am okay. It's not amazing, but I have support. I cannot fathom the resilience of people getting through these times. And yet I see how quickly certain norms have been immediately um, developed. It's like the Zoom norm. Okay. There's there. The norm of other things. Like the systems can be completely reimagined so quickly. This is like human, you know, whatever, like invention, human ingenuity or whatever. And yet there are certain norms that are not changing at all. And I just, why are those norms not changing? And, And what is the tactic behind that? But I just think that at this moment in time when everything is being called into question, we can see things clearer even in their ugliness. We can see things. I I feel that so strongly. And I think earlier on, you know, in March, in April, in May, I felt so terrified and grief stricken, but I also felt like this is the moment where if things are ever going to change, you know, if we are ever going to have a true environmental you know revolution if we are going to have if we're going to recognize the connection between social justice and environmentalism if we're going to you know recognize you know these the way these systems were designed to exclude oppress and murder basically um this is the moment because even rich people are in this because you know, even white people are afraid even, you know, like the, and I, so I had this moment of hope. Um, and I, I'm, I'm a little bit losing that hope because I, you know, I don't know if it's because of the specific nature of COVID where we're basically like told to like stay away and stay home and, you know, not protest and, you know, not rise up and like tear down the banks. And, you know, because of so much fear and I think that, you know, individual fear, you know, unfortunately, you know, nine times out of 10 doesn't lead to, social equality it really tends to lead to more oppression um i i don't know i'm starting to think this moment is not possible um if we can't now you know if we're just if we're basically just saying okay there's no more school fine we'll do school 
and somehow keep working. Okay, you know, uh, we're we're expecting these extraordinary uh, sacrifices by essential workers like doctors and nurses. And okay, fine. That's that's just that's just what it means to be a nurse in COVID times. You you know, that's just what it means to be a public school teacher. That's just what it means. You know, to you know, no, like that's the problem is that the same people are continuing to do the work with even less pay with even less security you know i i don't know i'm we both could talk about this forever but well i think that capitalism doesn't work actually for most people mm-hmm. and i think that that's something that we that people say well that's ridiculous what's a system that works better than capitalism it's the best that we could come up with as humans and i think that's just the power narrative mm-hmm. that's seeding that out that I also am losing a little bit of hope, but I'm remembering that that is also tactical. And I think that we, I mean, at least with the protests after Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, I at first was like looking at these big cities with these crowds of people going, oh my God. But the level of professionalism and social responsibility of mask wearing and people being relatively far apart. Um, You know, I, like, I was amazed by that. And I think now, I mean, you know, everyone's beaten down by Mm -hmm. fatigue and fear and everything to different levels. But I also think that now is the time when wondrous investments are being made in the stock market. And there are people who are making shit tons of money right now. And that is scarier to me. I mean, it's what you're saying where it's like, Right now, it feels like the world is ending, and yet still, like, the capitalist model is to have certain people benefit from that shittiness. Mm -hmm. And so it's capitalism is actually in full effect working right now. We just get to see it in, in more, in harsher light. It was there all along. And so, I don't know, like, I think that in a way, the hope is that the uglier it gets, the more we will be less duped, you know, and the clo- we will see that we're actually closer to the thing that we fear the most. And that, and that if we can acknowledge that, then perhaps we can somehow become unhooked enough from our own part that we play in it and go, okay, hold on a second. What is that small thing that I could do? And it's small. And if everybody was doing that, what does that look like, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but that's, I don't know. It might take a revolution. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we think that's not possible, but it's happened before. Right. Okay. This is e- either the craziest uh, pivot or it makes perfect sense, which is to go from here to Psyche and Eros. Because on the one hand, it seems like who cares about Psyche and Eros right now? Uh, this is, this is not what we need. We need a revolution. Um, but I do think that, that within that story, you know, I want to ask you, like, why did you go back to that story? Um, and how is this retelling reimagining of Psyche and Eros? Like, why was that important to you? Um, because I do think uh, inherent in that is this, uh, tension between, the need to see things clearly, no matter what they are, but even when doing so may lead to sort of destruction and, and, and this lack of faith 
in what you have or, uh, you know, and, and, and I don't think that that's ever, you know, that's part of why the myth is we want to retell it and rethink it because it doesn't come down with like a moral really at the end of the story. Um, like you should just do this or you should, you know, it's, it's, it's more right. about human nature. So tell me a little bit, like how, at what point did you realize that Psyche and Eros was part of this story or did you realize that from the very beginning? Actually from the very beginning, that is how this story started. I was given a book of psychoanalytic theory by an astrologer that I had reached out to who was a really interesting woman. And she gave me a stack of books, most of which were about like narratives of the goddess Mm -hmm. and mythology from the feminine perspective throughout history um, in matriarchal and matrilineal cultures. Um, And one of the books was psychoanalytic theory by this guy, Robert Johnson from like 1980. And basically, it was a very small book, and it was um, basically just like he decided, or I think it might have been something discussed in psychoanalytic circles, that the myth of Eros and Psyche was actually this archetypal myth about a woman's coming into awareness. And so what he did was he took the myth, which I was familiar with from childhood because I totally grew up with my dad reading me Dolores' book of Greek Mm -hmm. myths, and Aphrodite in particular was my favorite. Um, because I don't know, she was beautiful or whatever, but, um, but, uh, so I was interested when I saw this book, it's called she, and it was, you know, so I was interested and I read it and he really picked, it was like a book of narrative theory, basically literary theory. He picked apart the myth and he explained how psychoanalytically, in fact, psyche is, it's not psyche. The woman is psyche and the man in question is the God of love. And that's how you can interpret your life. Literally. Mm -hmm. It's actually all about female projection and how psyche is psyche. Eros is actually the animus. It's like the male side of everyone. Um, You have your anima, your animus, and, and it's all about projection. And even Aphrodite is the projection of a woman's ability to see the goddess in others and not herself and everything. And for whatever reason, when I read that myth, I mean, that book, I thought, like, I don't know, it just clicked. I thought, well, if all roots, all in quotes, because classical mythology is not the root of literature, Mm -hmm. in fact, it's a root, and it is a root in the canon, quote unquote, but if that is the root of stories, and if projection is in every story, then how would I tell the story of myself? And if I were to tell the story of myself, not the real, not a documentary, but if I were to narrativize the things that I'm interested in, who would play whom? And how would I interpret the characters based on a projection as opposed to, say, Asa the husband based on my husband, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people will say, aha, he must be your husband. And it's like, absolutely not in fact. In fact, it is a projection of me. Mm-hmm. If you could see all the characters as a projection of myself, that would be the truest way to interpret it. Anyway, so that's how it got started. And I think that I'm not even sure I agree with that idea necessarily, nor would I do it again. And But it was this thing for me that felt really interesting as a way to, I don't know, find happiness through by using an old story to figure out my story 
And then as I edited and kept working on it, it wasn't even really my story anymore, but it was like a story of like a belief system or a story of a state, one state of being human, which somehow was what I was seeking in the beginning, actually. And um, yeah, I mean, I think one thing I learned from, from reading this book was that actually the conventional wedding of um, a veil and all of that and walking down the aisle was actually born out of the myth mm. of Eros and Psyche. It's the death of her maidenhood. So actually that was the funeral procession mm. of her losing her maidenhood and becoming a wife. And I was just like, really? That's crazy that we still, like, even, like, my hippie friends, they do the same thing that the, like, like the fancy city people do just with mason jars instead mm -hmm. of champagne flutes. I'm like, really? Like, we do this cultural trope that is so just, like, a thing that people do is rooted in this myth, maybe? Anyway, so uh, it's interesting. It was interesting to me in that way, too. Also, as a way to come to term with a story I was told as a child, I think, mm -hmm. and how it could relate to me now. You, you said uh, when you were talking about Psyche and Eros, um, I don't remember if you were talking to Julie Bunton, um, maybe you were, but you were talking about um, that doing this thing that you just described, narrati narrativizing your life um, and seeing all of these characters as projections was a way out. But ha can you say more about that? Without narrative, without storytelling, without seeing our lives as story, I think that's very hard to feel that you that life has any meaning. And yet there is kind of a narrative structure, which almost always, be, in part because we have so little access to matrifocal, matrilineal, um, complicated forms, non-patriarchal, non-heterocentrist you know, forms, narrativizing is not a objective free process, right? So that's one thing, but also just narrativizing in the sense of beginning, middle and end rather than a cycle, R you know, the idea of progress rather than phases, you know, that, that, that there's almost, as soon as we tell ourselves a story about ourselves, in some ways we're more confined. Yeah. Totally. Um, I think that my whole life I have been telling a story about myself and I made a decision maybe born out of the social responsibility that I felt as a mother um, to not tell that story about myself to them mm. because that's all I have control over really is how I tell the story of my life and I feel like Every single time something happens in my life, every fight that I have with my husband, every hard moment where I go down the spiral, I always come back to the same thing, which is it's really all how you look at it because happiness is not something that is given or bought. It actually is not something that is linked with class or caste as Isabel Wilkerson so beautifully writes about it. And I love that book. I'm reading it right now. But um it's not, happiness is not linked to class. Um, happiness is actually something that is deeply innate and is a sparkle. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but it's, it's, 
it's something that is elusive and magical and knows no bounds and does not seek comfort in in commerce in the way other things do. And so to me, it's about like, I think that's what I'm searching for is happiness. I think that might be what we're all searching for and maybe happiness in a way that's not the definition that we're used to using. Maybe happiness. Well, it's funny because Agnes Varda said, I forget, in an interview or in one of her films, she said that happiness is the joy and the pain living side by side. Mm. And if one can sit with the joy and the pain side by side and see that as happiness, then it, you know, then that's balance maybe. And I feel like I've read books on mindfulness and studied that a little bit. And that's kind of like awareness perhaps is happiness. And so if one can be aware of who they are and where they are, then that can be liberating just because of like, I don't know, being in the moment or something like that. But that feels really easy to say. And I feel like it's rife with potential problems because, you know, maybe you can only say that because I'm spending, you know, these hours talking to you and not working the, you know, graveyard shift at the, you know, the hospital or whatever. So Mm -hmm. it's not so simple, but I think that like, if we can break down what we think of as true, then maybe we would be open to a new truth. And maybe the new truth could have a better outcome than what this shitty current truth is, you know? And like, it's sort of like, okay, it brings me back to Angela Davis, who I've been rereading Women, Race, and Class, which I think was written in like the early 80s. And she's talking about like, the African-American family and how at the time of writing, there was this narrative about how broken the black, the American black family was. And it was because of slavery and it was so terrible. And she said, actually on the contrary, the, the black American family is not broken at all. In fact, it is incredibly resilient. And what black women in particular, enslaved women and then post-slavery in the family was like the most unbelievable resilience and passion and ability to do exactly what we're doing right now, which is juggled the, any fastball sent anyone's way. That's all how you look at it. Mm-hmm. It depends. It's how we tell these stories. When there's something you said that almost made me burst into tears and I'm going to share that with you in one second, but I, I want to say that I can hear my 19 year old downstairs yeah. uh, moving around like, where I the know. fuck are you? And I where late. I know it's really late. So I am not going to ask you about translation, even though I'm so interested in it, but I'm going to hope that I'll email you and maybe you'll give me a list of some favorite books in translation and you'll give another interview where you talk all about why you love reading books in translation in particular. And I want to know if you have any questions for me (laughs) and then I have to let you go. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I would say first, the quickest answer to that is that I love writing in translation because there is a different form of the sentences and there's a Mm -hmm. veil in between the reader and the writer. So I feel like there's this dream space of, of, you know, 
between the translator and the writer, between the culture of where it was written and when it was written and the time and all that stuff. So that's the easy, that's why I love it because it feels like it's many realities at once. And I don't know, questions for you, my God. Like that is not a good way to end because I could go on forever. (laughs) I'm so grateful for you taking the time to talk to me and asking I don't know, such great questions. And I love your, I love commonplace. I feel like you, I don't know, you give space for people to spread out and your work. I don't know. Like it's, again, I came to your work late, but I have so many questions about like (laughs) your mother, for example, and the tyranny of stories and all like, there's just so many, um, like, I don't know, but like now I'm going to go reread your books (laughs) (laughs) well and maybe maybe you know you don't have to answer right now I feel like I'm asking you out on a date but um maybe (laughs) one day we'll write something together or write something in conversation I mean I know whatever I write next will for sure be in conversation both with the shame and with this conversation okay okay McKenna you are amazing wonderful and I, I hope we get to meet IRL This has been episode 90 of Commonplace with McKenna Goodman. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. The Commonplace team includes Christine LaRusso, Doreen Wang, and myself. Many, many thanks to Milkweed Editions, Europa Editions, Vintage Books, and Tin House Books. Thank you to all the patrons who support Commonplace. And thank you, listener, for listening. You're listening to music composed and performed by Judah Darwin Zucker Gorin, whose first EP is coming out hopefully in the next month. Bye.